This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. I'm telling the story of 10 siblings from the Machel Cox family through the letters they wrote to each other. They were born in England between 1868 and 1884. Seven of them lived in England and three lived abroad in the colonies. In this episode, we rejoin the Machel Cox family budget. It is June 1907, and the extended family are looking forward to their summer holiday at Studland Bay in Dorset. There is a fine Studland Bay photo of them on my Twitter account, Machel Cox Letters. People wore fabulous hats in 1907, and Dr Cox is still wearing full clerical black, even on his summer holidays. There is discussion and planning for the bicycling tour, which will take place in September 1907. Neville has managed to get them all organised. Bernard proposes a pageant for Sydenham, which is full of his imaginative ideas. As he says, Sydenham has little notable history of its own. Neville's ship has finally reached England, from Africa. He is home for a holiday with his family and Wilfred's first letter appears in the budget. Bernard's letter. Sydenham, 2nd of June, 1907. Dear family, the budget will be immensely bulky this time, as it includes a diary written by Enid, Cyril and myself, during our fortnight's holiday in Brittany. I've enjoyed Brittany immensely. The country was decidedly hilly, and the roads were on the whole good, although not as good as I had expected. Cuthbert, I must apologise for throwing doubt on your account of your tyre. I found that mine was an Enfield tyre too, and it certainly didn't seem a good one when we inspected it at a cycle shop in Brittany. Cuthbert's athletics heats is quite out of my line, but Edmund's solution seems very lucid. Doesn't it make all the difference, though, if a second prize is given? Buys are very unsatisfactory. Saddle of mutton is quite beyond me, though I dare say the kitten would like to be known by that name in place of Alexandra. However, she has been named after the Queen, so I am looking forward to the explanation. Edmund's suggestion interests me, as a saddle of mutton can indeed be carved two ways. I'm delighted to be able to announce that I shall be able to come for a few days on the cycling tour. I must be at the office on Monday, September the 2nd, so I may join you all for the Thursday to Sunday proceeding. The Y Valley seems generally favoured. I hope there will be a photographer among the party, so as to snap Neville when he decides to go in for a heap of hedge clippings. I'm thinking of getting up a Sydenham pageant. Father is always going to pageants in other locations. Sydenham does not seem to have much history, so I'm going to transplant a few scenes from other parts of England to give the show a medieval setting. I hope this will amuse you all. Episode 1, 
Lady Godiva riding through the streets of Coventry. Miss Moore, the parish nurse here, has kindly consented to take the title part, and Longton Grove is suggested as a suitable place for this scene. Episode 2, King Henry VIII and his wives. King Henry VIII to be played by Mr Foster. The trials of the various queens will take place in Sydenham Wells Park, and the executions will take place on a scaffold erected in the garden of our own abode, St Albans, 13 Longton Avenue. The said scaffold has been kindly lent for the purpose by the Reverend Dr Cox, who will himself take the part of Thomas Cromwell. Cardinal Wolsey will be represented by the Reverend Williams, and Archbishop Cranmer by the present Archbishop of Canterbury, who has graciously consented to appear in our Sydenham pageant. Episode 3, Scene 1. King John losing the crown jewels in the wash. Scene 2. The washerwoman discovering the crown jewels at the laundry. The wash has been kindly lent by members of St Philip's congregation and the jewels are lent by Miss Avis Cox. Episode 4. The Colonial Conference of 1907. Stage managed by Lord Northcliffe. Scene 1. Lord Elgin kicking the Prime Minister down the stairs of the Colonial Office. Scene 2. Mr Winston Churchill refusing the offer of a preference. Scene 3. General Botha slapping Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman's face. Scene 4. The editor of the Daily Mail called in to preside. He offers Mr Deakin a peerage. Scene 5. Dinner with the Premiers, at which Mr Deakin announces that the colonies have decided to cut England adrift from the British Empire. Mr Neville Cox, who is coming over from South Africa on purpose, will represent General Botha. Episode 5. The Introduction of Cabs into England. Mrs John Charles Cox will drive up from Walter Cobb's department store at frequent intervals during the day, attired in suitable costumes. Episode 6. The Introduction of Trams into Sydenham. A tram line will be laid along Jews Walk and West Hill by the moderator of the Lewisham Borough Council. Mrs George has very kindly offered to supply the workers with homemade slow gin. At midday, the first tram will run, driven by the Reverend Dr Cox and with Mr George acting as conductor. The bells of St Bartholomew's Church will ring a joyous peal. Grand finale, the whole Cox family presented with the freedom of Sydenham by Mr Shiner. All the costumes designed by Miss May Purser. I do like the little sketch at the end of Vera's letter of Avis crying. It looks like Avis's style. Please do some more sketches, Avis. An illustrated edition of the budget will be a novelty. It is very nice to see another contribution from Neville, but it will be still nicer to see himself in person. Aldwin's first contribution is very interesting, but part of it is too coarse for Cuthbert, I am afraid. As mother has abstracted it, however, I cannot comment on it. I have hardly read anything lately, owing to having been abroad. However, I have read Cook's Guide to Normandy and Brittany, Baedeker's Guide to Northern France, and Baring Gould's Guide to Brittany. 
I can recommend all these three. Also the London and South Western Railway Timetable for their steam packet service to the Channel Islands and the continent. I am feeling singularly stupid, so will now stop. Your affectionate brother, Bernard. Notes on Bernard's letter. The diary written by Bernard, Enid and Cyril on their cycling tour in France has been lost. Bernard intended it to go round with the budget, but Arthur thought it made the budget too bulky, so he posted the cyclist's diary on ahead. It was separated from the budget and has not survived. Churches still put on pageants today, which are generally biblical re-enactments. There were clearly a lot of them a hundred years ago, as Dr Cox goes to many, reporting for the Church Times and the Athenaeum. Although I'm not sure if Dr Cox was reporting for the Athenaeum Journal or the Athenaeum Private Gentlemen's Club. Probably the Journal. Oberammergau in Germany puts on a passion play, and it has done so every 10 years since 1634, although COVID-19 stopped it this year. They are huge dramatic productions. The UK pageants which the Machel Coxes talk about were probably something similar, but on a smaller scale. Bernard's fictional pageant talks about the Colonial Conference of 1907, which I've just been reading all about on Wikipedia. These conferences were gatherings of leaders from the colonies and dominions of the British Empire from 1887 to 1937. In 1944, they then became known as the Meetings of Commonwealth Prime Ministers. In 1907, as well as a whole host of British politicians, the following Prime Ministers were also present. Australia, Canada, three from the South African colonies of Natal, the Transvaal and Cape Colony, as well as Newfoundland and New Zealand. 1907 was the last time it was known as the Colonial Conference. They decided to rename it as the Imperial Conference, and the British colonies from then on were known as Dominions, not colonies. Irish home rule and possible self-governance for India were also discussed. Lord Elgin was the British Secretary of State, presumably a later Lord Elgin than the one involved with the Elgin marbles. According to Bernard, he kicks the British Prime Minister down the stairs. General Botha is the Premier of the Transvaal, the South African political chaos which greatly angered Neville. Bernard has him slapping Sir Campbell Bannerman, the British Prime Minister. Mr Deakin is the Australian Prime Minister. He is offered a peerage by the Daily Mail. Mr Deakin then announces that the British colonies have decided to cut England loose from the British Empire, which quite amuses me. Australia ejecting England from the British Empire. What would Bernard say today if he knew about Brexit? It's also interesting that the siblings didn't think much of the Daily Mail. I don't think it's well regarded by many today either. Bernard mentions Mr George being the conductor of the first Sydenham tram and Mrs George agreeing to make slow gin. I'm not sure, but he might be referring to David Lloyd George, who was in the cabinet in 1907 and then became Prime Minister in 1916. Bernard also mentions reading Aldwin's first letter and he says that Mother has abstracted it to read it. Well, thank goodness she put it back into the budget or Aldwin's letter would have been lost as well.
Cuthbert's letter. Number 2, Chapel Street, Berkhamstead, 9th of June, 1907. Dear family, it is summer at last. On Monday, when Mother and Vera were here, we had to have a fire. Today, at 10 o'clock in the morning, it is almost oppressively hot and I am writing this having taken my coat off. Mother and Vera came here for three days and had very bad luck, as we had so much rain, but both were duly impressed with the beauties of this place and its surroundings. At the risk of boring some of you, I am going to finish off my tale from the Lake District. The day after our Thirlmere expedition, we took only a short walk, crossing Catbells and going up Borrowdale. The next day was rain, so we postponed our long day to Wastwater till the Wednesday. We started early, on a beautiful day, and once more crossed Catbells, went down Borrowdale as far as Seathwaite, the rainiest place in England, then by the Stiehead Pass to Wastwater. We had a very poor lunch at a very dirty hotel at the head of the lake. We got back to Rosthwaite at five, had tea there at the Scarfell Hotel and reached home at seven, having done 30 miles. Wastwater surpassed all expectations and photos certainly do not do it justice. An interesting point connected with the walk is that I was wearing the same boots in which I walked across Dartmoor with Wilfred from Yelverton to Exeter in 1904. The next day we did not do very much but as it was extraordinarily clear, we went right up to the top of Catbells to get the panoramic view. We got a splendid view right down Bassenthwaite to the sea and the Scotch coast beyond. The next day was our last and we had made up our minds to go to Ullswater. Fortunately, it was fine. We went by train from Keswick to Troutbeck and walked down to the lake from there. There is uninteresting road until the last mile, when you begin to get glimpses of the lake. We got a fine view of Helvellyn. We walked along the shore for some three miles, and then turned up to Brackenrig Hotel, and then on to Penedock Station, and so trained back to Keswick, having walked 20 miles. Next day, poor Hopkins came out of quarantine, and joined us at an early breakfast as our train left Keswick at 9.30. After a very slow and cold journey, we reached Berkhamstead about seven. In spite of poor Hopkins' enforced absence during all but three days, we had had a splendid fortnight and glorious weather. Gill Bank is a splendid place to stop, not at all expensive, and cooking and rooms are excellent. During the 13 days, two of which were blank, we walked just on 200 miles without ever really tiring ourselves more than comfortably. I then had the two excitements of the annual Old Boys Dinner and then the Old Boys Football Club General Meeting, both held in town. It may interest some of you to know the Old Boys Football Club have received their invitation to the Dunn Cup competition for next season and also that we are joining the Amateur Football Federation in the definitive split from professional football. There is little to say about the term, except about the continued bad weather. I have had a good deal of cricket, considering, but have had very bad luck so far. It has been very busy indeed, and feels really more like the end of term than the beginning. 
I'm also acting as Assistant Secretary to Dr Fry, who is Secretary to one section of the Pan-Anglican Conference, and that means a good number of letters to write. I am also one of the judges for a House Essay Competition, which means very careful correcting of 18 essays, none of them less than a dozen pages of foolscap. It will interest Enid to know that when I was round at supper with the head a week ago, the question as to who should be asked to give away the prizes this year came up. He had suggested Sir Ernest Satar, but did not think he would be back from the Hague Conference. I suggested Lord Collins, and Fry jumped at the idea, and is going to ask him, and if not this year, then next. We had Charlie Fry to preach here two Sundays ago. His voice and delivery are both very bad, but it was not a bad sermon on the whole, but I've never heard a man speak so fast. Now, may I deal once more with the problem of the heats at the sports? Fifteen entrants to be reduced to three. I am afraid I did not make it quite clear that as there is a house cup for athletics, the second place gets marks as well as the first. Edmund's conclusion is therefore quite wrong. Anyhow, buys are not usual in athletic sports. Nine is the smallest possible number. I enclose a sketch with the 15 heats as they were run on the day. I am almost ashamed to confess that the saddle of mutton suggestion was only made in the hope that someone would see a connection. The only one I can see myself is that father is devoted to them both. I hoped that some of you would come up with some humorous ideas. The new feature in the budget, namely the illustrations, is distinctly one to be encouraged. I enjoyed them immensely. Talking of bicycles, I have again had my chain off and three or four links have had to be replaced. Still, it is an extremely comfortable machine and light. I beg to state that I did not fall off at the sound of a motor during that famous incident on the Isle of Wight. I believe it was Burr and Avis who fell off, though Aldwin was so frightened that he bicycled away at speed down another side road. It is with difficulty I refrain from touching on the South African question, but I will only say I agree entirely with Avis. I am getting thoroughly disgusted with the political daily papers of both sides. They become more and more unscrupulous and American every day. I read Keddy, an Oxford story by H.T. Dickinson, a man who was in my year at Oxford. It has been very well reviewed as giving a true picture of Oxford, but like all books, except The Babe, B.A., it is too overdone. I am thankful I never came across quite such an unmitigated beast as the second hero of the story. The character of Mr Carpenter is, however, a fairly true picture of one of the Poozy House men. It is an interesting book. Your affectionate brother, Cuthbert. Notes on Cuthbert's letter. It must be summer. Cuthbert has taken his coat off. Although he is probably referring to a jacket, not an overcoat. Does anyone else remember their grandmother saying, ne'er cast the clout till May is out? Cuthbert writes down the 1907 Berkhamsted School hurdle heats, which caused such heated discussion amongst the siblings. 
15 boys ran. The letters A to O are used. Seven heats. Very complicated, I don't really follow. And I'm not sure what a buy is. I will include Cuthbert's sketch on Twitter if you are interested in what they were all arguing about. Cuthbert's Lake District letter is interesting from a railway point of view. All those train stations that are not there anymore due to Dr Beeching, although there are a lot of bike trails now instead. Cuthbert is talking about the Great Isle of Wight bicycling incident. They all talk a great deal about it. In the next podcast episode, Avis drew a sketch, which is on my Twitter page. The siblings argue greatly about this incident, which occurred on a summer holiday on the Isle of Wight some years previously, when motor cars were still quite rare. The siblings were cycling and a motor car appeared behind them. Avis's sketch depicts Cuthbert as the courageous one, as he kept on cycling. Aldwin escaped along another side road. His caption says, Aldwin in a funk, beating a retreat. Meanwhile, Avis and Bernard crashed into the hedge in a panic at the approaching motor car. Although the siblings also talk about Neville, saying he liked piles of hedge clippings in the ditch as well. Cuthbert says, I beg to state that I did not fall off at the sound of a motor during that famous incident on the Isle of Wight. I believe it was Bernard and Avis who fell off, though Aldwin was so frightened that he bicycled away at speed down another side road. Arthur's letter. Garfield House, Stoke, Devonport, 9th of June 1907. Dear family, the budget has not yet reached me, but the literary supplement has. It deals with the sentimental journey in Brittany and is of great enthralling interest. The description, rich piquancy, may be substituted here by admirers of BB of the Tribune. It is also of such bulky dimensions that I propose to pass my remarks on it now and then forward it, forthwith, carriage paid, to Dorothy, who is, I suppose, next on the list after Avis. Otherwise, I think the circulation of the budget will be seriously thrown out of gear. Avis declares that she could not possibly read it through again in order to comment on it. She certainly took over two days to read it through once but she has given us her opinion that it is interesting and amusing and when her turn for the budget comes she will properly have something more to say about it. I shall be curious to see the press notices and foretell a great boom. It should however have been illustrated and a few more of Cyril's eyes should have been dotted for the sake of variety. And yet... The page describing the photographer's difficulties in the Cathedral of St. Paul de Leon is a perfect word picture, and I enjoyed the scene almost as much as if I had been there. Before I got very far, I paid the bicycling compilers the real compliment of fetching out my Harmsworth Atlas, and I traced out their route through Brittany. I find that most of the names they mention are quite genuine, but just here and there, They have evidently drawn on their imagination, as the places they mention are not on the map. 
Enid's story of the bargaining at the horse fair would have certainly been a good subject for a snapshot. I wonder that Cyril or Bernard did not try their hand. Ne sais pas, as such an opportunity does not often occur. 10th of June. I thought to have grasped time by the forelock, but he is a slippery customer. Despite my having started my letter early, the post has arrived and here is the budget upon me already. I am really beginning to feel quite self-conscious over my writing. This corrugated paper looks very pretty, but it is not half so nice to write on as I expected. Edmund, I gather, finds my handwriting cursed hard reading, and Neville will not even admit to my good breeding. Thank you, Enid and Vera, for putting in a good word for me. I hoped some good Christian might. As to Cuthbert's sports heats problem, I think, but perhaps I am wrong, that I perhaps shall have the last word. It did not escape my notice that with buys, the lowest number of heats previous to the final is six, but I took it for granted that buys were inadmissible for sports. Without buys, seven heats must be run before the final. Five heats of three boys for the first round. Two heats of three and two boys, respectively, in the semi-finals. The official results are weirdly ingenious, but quite marred by the fact that in the second round, K and N are given a walkover, which is virtually a bye in the second round. At that rate, the tangled tail might be continued ad infinitum. Of course, my system would have wiped out poor B in the first round. Instead of bringing him up to the final heat, having already run six times, and been beaten by A three times. But my brain reels. 11th of June. Bernard's pageant sounds promising, though I have not enough acquaintance with Sydenham's society to appreciate his points. I fully expect Aldwyn's next budget letter, in about a year's time, will contain an indignant denial of his part in that inglorious cycling incident with the motor car. Avis's letter is, of course, of great interest to me. As to the five windows of the drawing room here at Garfield House, they are often a source of embarrassment to Avis and myself. It may be that there is some subject upon which we hold different views, and just as we are gravitating towards each other to come to a closer understanding, we remember our conspicuous situation and the necessity for decorous behaviour. For one thing, she keeps a very tight hold of the purse strings, and only this afternoon there was quite an unseemly struggle before I could get three shillings from her. The other night, quite unconsciously, Avis and I found ourselves rotating slowly round and round the biggest armchair in the drawing room, so we got up an impromptu game of musical chairs. I provided the music, and I won each time, till Avis accused me of not playing fairly. I could tell you scores of her quaint doings and sayings, and she really is getting to talk quite prettily now. I forgot to mention that after I had secured the three shillings I referred to, Avis called out after me, that while I was gone to tennis, she would go and filfer in my pockets. Three days ago, I was asked by the prelate to be his church warden. This is not a joke, and it certainly would not have been one if I had accepted the job. 
14th of June. It is now 9.40pm and we have a comfortable fire. And to think that we might have been dining out at this very moment. We were asked and accepted dutifully when to our relief we had a respite, as our host, Captain Horsley, has been called away from home for a few days. I am afraid that when we do go, Avis will have forgotten the rules of etiquette that Mother had compiled for her benefit, and the postman's, on the back of a postcard. I read them carefully and was specially impressed by Mother's injunction to Avis to take her gloves half off at dinner. Which half, I wonder? This afternoon, to provide against further contingencies, I have been measured for a new dress suit. 16th of June. A word of warning to those contemplating the purchase of a new tennis racket. This year I thought I would try a light racket for a change, and I invested in a very promising one. Airs Supreme, marked 13.5 ounce. Well, the handle was much too large, so a handy friend of mine planed it down. And then to restore the balance, having shaved off about one and a half ounce, he fixed a lump of brass to the end. However, when I tried it, it seemed too heavy in the handle. So he took the brass off, and I asked him to make up the total weight to exactly 13.5 ounce. He came here to announce that by accurate weighing, without any extra ballast, it weighed 14 ounce. So the original weight must have been well over 15 ounce. The moral is, weigh it in the shop. I had my periodic row at Smith's bookstall the other day, and I am now being very well attended to. We had a pretty successful group taken the other day of the school, with Avis and myself, and Miss Wood, and Moore, and Ponsonby, and Avis's hat, and Miss Wood's hat in the foreground, and the boys in the middle distance. Afterwards, I overheard Humphrey, who takes life very seriously and conscientiously, remarking to a pal, I say, don't you feel awfully run down after having your photograph taken? Before the budget comes round again, matters of some moment to me will have arranged themselves. The manor house is now to be sold by auction on July the 4th. To buy or not to buy, that is the question. And a very difficult one too, involving many problems in its train. Notes on Arthur's letter. Arthur left his letter unfinished. I expect Avis posted the budget onto Vera in Sydenham and Vera then finished Arthur's letter for him and signed his name. Vera added, Sometimes I forget to end my letters, but Avis is calling me to ask which blouse she is to put on, so I must stop in a hurry. Yours individually and collectively. A.H.Matrilcox, written by Vera. Arthur then writes nine book reviews, including a long section written in Latin. They were a very well-read lot, but if I included all the book reviews, this episode would go on all day. Avis's sketch is of Arthur and herself and the blouse in question, and Arthur with his dripping fountain pen, leaving his writing desk and the unfinished letter. The church of Stoke Dameril is still there, in Plymouth, where the Reverend Ponsonby was the parish priest in 1907. Garfield House School was nearby, although I'm not sure where exactly. Reverend Ponsonby was not a prelate, as that is a word used to describe a bishop. 
Avis doesn't like him, and neither does Arthur, although I don't know what poor Ponsonby did to earn their dislike. But Arthur was clearly not impressed with Ponsonby suggesting he become a church warden. I do like descriptions of photographs, even if the photo has not survived. I love the way photos are often described. We were taken in a group. Taken where, I want to ask. In this school photo, there was Avis's hat and Miss Wood's hat in the foreground and the schoolboys were in the middle distance. Vera's letter, Sydenham, Sunday 23rd of June 1907. Dear family, we have at last had a telegram from Neville to say he has landed. We expected him two days ago, Friday, and a special dinner was ordered. Soup, duck, potatoes, green peas, etc., ending up with a noble dish of strawberries. Then we heard the ship was a day late and would be in on Saturday afternoon. Another Neville dinner was ordered, salmon and so on. Father spent the day meeting endless trains and telegraphing and rebuking impudent office boys on the telephone and finally, despairing of Neville, endeavoured to find a strawberry ice. Again, however, meeting with disappointment. Today, the same joke started again. Another Neville dinner, saddle of mutton, ending up with strawberries, cherries, apples, etc. Father went up to town to meet a train, but came back in the middle of the day, having had no success. So we scored our third Neville dinner. Still, he really is coming at last, and we expect him here today for supper. I will tell you later on how handsome he is, and if he says, well, 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 well. The budget this time is of truly noble dimensions, and very interesting too. Of course, I had already read the Brittany account, as it was sent straight home first. It makes me long for my first experience abroad. Edmund, I sympathise with you on your illness. Mother has been giving us quite dismal accounts. But I hope by the time you get this, you will have quite recovered. I hope you will appreciate Arthur's drawing. I think it is delightful. Avis, the very nice note paper you refer to is some that I happened to take with me to Garfield House. But I don't like it much, and I'm now using some that I got at Berkhamstead. We hear nothing of Avis at home now, as she seems to have given up writing letters. After strenuous appeals, she finally sent three photographs of herself last week, but no letter. Perhaps the calling card she put in the budget is supposed to answer every purpose. I thought of putting my card in this time instead of a letter. Whilst I was with Avis at Devonport for a week, she kept me on toast. You have no idea what a housekeeper she is. She kept inquiring why such and such thing had not been done, things I'd never heard of, and how the servants did so and so, till I became very conscious of my shortcomings, and I was lost in admiration. I am afraid housework does not altogether appeal to me, and I am content to let things go on as they are, without finding out what is really done or left undone. Alexandra, the kitten, continues to grow, alas, but she is really most amusing, and when the old cat gets roused, you should see them chasing each other, turn and turn about, all over the drawing room furniture. Enid, I cannot remember what your spelling mistake was, but I know it was merely a slip, only it looked quaint. 
I'm afraid the family, will be somewhat shocked at my accent next time we meet. I have been dropping a good many H's lately. I only hope one of them won't go when I'm trying to make a good impression on Neville. The other day, to balance things, when I was playing tennis at the Lazenby's, I shouted, HOT! at the top of my voice. Bernard's Sydenham pageant is most amusing, more especially to me as I know everyone mentioned. Mother read it out to father and they simply chortled over it. I know this is against budget rules. Father is going pageanting all next week to the various places in turn and he will be reporting for the Church Times and the Athenaeum. Rendell of the Athenaeum was asked to the King's Garden Party yesterday as a distinguished literary person. Mother and I greatly enjoyed our visit to Berkhamstead a fortnight ago. It was so interesting to go there at last, having heard so much about it. It quite came up to my expectations, and the surrounding countryside is so beautiful. Arthur, I roared over the filfer story. It was lovely. I am very anxious to see the school group. Mind you or Avis, bring one of the photographs to Studland. I think Humphrey's remark was delicious and very characteristic of that funny little boy. I am very interested as to the fate of the manor house. I do wonder what will happen. 28th of June. I find I must send this off at once or I shall be over time. Very many happy returns of the day, Avis. It has been most delightful seeing Neville again. He is just the same, but this time it was, Hello, 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 hello. I was only just beginning not to be shy of him when he flew off to Arthur for a week's visit. He has brought home a nice little collection of African things, and he has given me a very pretty little brooch with a natal lucky berry hanging from it. It is a very hard black and scarlet berry that grows out there, and I believe the natives use them as some sort of charm. A letter has just come from Wilfred for the budget, which I have enclosed. It is very nice to have the first one at last, and I hope he will contribute regularly. I expect you have all heard from Mother that poor Aldwin is ill again. He has been in the hospital in Kotakota with a severe attack of fever. He has been too ill to write himself, so the priest, Mr Glossop, wrote for him. I suppose he is quite recovered by now, as that letter was written on the 8th of May. Your affectionate sister, Vera. Notes on Vera's letter. Poor Neville. Cook is instructed to prepare a fancy meal to welcome Neville home. Three successive dinners are described by Vera, all of which Neville misses because his ship is late. Bernard later describes how Vera enjoyed the special dinners. I imagine the ship arrived at Folkestone and Dr Cox went into London to meet the train that he expected Neville to arrive on, but he doesn't know for sure. How communication has changed. The names of meals are confusing. Dinner was eaten in the middle of the day, but the midday meal was only called dinner if it was a big meal. It was called lunch if it was a smaller meal, as Dr Cox describes in his London Lunches letter but the meal is also called luncheon. Presumably that was a more formal meal. Tea is eaten at about five o'clock, including bread, jam, toast, scones and cake. Interestingly, the family never describe it as afternoon tea, 
which is a very Australian description. To the Coxes, it is always just tea, and then there is supper. The Machel Coxes were fairly wealthy. Presumably less well-off families didn't eat quite so much food. But in the family photos, no one looks overweight. Wilfred's letter. Creighton Valley, Lumbee, British Columbia, 10th of June, 1907. Dear budget readers, I am very grateful for two entertaining budgets, so I must do my best to write something. I am somewhat under the weather at present. The results are playing cricket on a very rough wicket on Saturday. Items of injury are a wicket-keeping finger, a bruised thumb and a pretty heavy crack in the ribs from a fast bowler. Still, I enjoyed my game. I've been fortunate enough to get a cricket match both the last Saturdays. I don't expect to get any more this season. I was eating my porridge this morning and suddenly discovered a five cent piece in my mouth. It was not meant as a surprise packet. Hutchinson had put it in my plate for me and I did not see it and put the mush on top of it. I've been very much interested in the book notices by the family staff of reviewers, and I've made a list of some of them for future guidance. I feel very envious of all of you having so many readable books available. I can recommend Her Son by H.A. Vachel, which I've just finished reading as a serial in an American magazine. Bernard, who appears to be the family censor, had better report whether it is considered quite nice or not. By the by, what does Edmund's greeting of Vacabed mean? Is it volapuk or what? We had a curious loss the other day. Young Denison was shooting gophers and made a great shot and killed a big hen turkey. She was poking her head up in the grass and must have looked very like a gopher. Do any of you naturalists know what a gopher is? Never will explain if you don't. I was digging a ditch for Shelton the other day when our neighbour Twiddle passed by. I asked him if he thought the ditch would take the water off all right. He said, yes, I think so, but what you want to do is dig it in a straight circle. Notes of exclamation are permissible in the budget, are they not? What Twiddle meant was to dig the ditch in a curve, but with straight edges, so the ditch could be covered in with planks of wood. This writing is nearly as bad as Cuthbert's, but I'm glad to see he has improved under severe criticism. Vernon is booming just now. Notes on Wilfred's letter. The last page of Wilfred's letter has been lost as he finishes mid-sentence. This is Wilfred's first letter for the budget, and he says he's enjoyed reading the first two budgets. By the summer of 1907, the siblings were up to budget number seven, and by 1920, they will reach budget number 84. It is surprising that so few pages have been lost, considering that all these early budgets consisted of letters written on multiple loose sheets of notepaper. Cuthbert, in particular, is told off for not numbering his pages. In 1920, after months of discussion via letters, the siblings made the decision to start using an exercise book for each budget. Arthur, in particular, was not happy, 
as he always liked to start his budget letter early. All of the letters are now housed in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. The early letters on sheets of notepaper are carefully stuck into large books. A lot of the exercise books are school ones. Many have Mount House School printed on the front. Others are from the Stanton Ironworks, where Edmund lived. There were evening classes for ironworkers to study for their qualifications. Wilfred is sibling number five. His first letter is brief, but we hear more about his life in later letters. He is a labourer in British Columbia in Canada, and he writes about grubbing stumps, removing tree stumps from the ground for road building. He is not well off, and he lives a very itinerant lifestyle, going from one job to another. Arthur frequently sends old cast-off clothes out to Wilfred. Edmund's letter. Woolly Moor, Alfreton, Saturday, July the 6th, 1907. Dear Vacabed, I am afraid that my contribution this time will have to be very brief, as I've now had the budget for my week, and I have barely an hour before my dinner will be ready, and we go off for a cricket match at Darley Dale, weather permitting, directly afterwards. What a huge collection the budget is this time, but I much appreciated the contents, including our cyclist's sheaf. I sat up late one evening on purpose to read it all. I am afraid I shall not now be able to afford myself the pleasure of again going through all the letters and answering various bits, etc., though it will be a great trial to me. I think we shall have to argue out Cuthbert's wonderful Berkhamsted hurdle heats when we meet at Studland. I really can't conceive any batch of sane mortals making such a wonderful hash as they seem to have done. I really should advise them to start next year's heat now if they want to get a really satisfactory final. I greatly admired Avis's calling card. I rather wonder whether we all ought to enclose one. I have had a fine time at camp. I was placed in command of a whole line, including various companies, so that I really had my hands pretty full and not often in my pockets. I'm quite hoping that some capable member of the budget will send out to the inexperienced cycle tourists a list of articles needed on tour. I really mean this. It would be most valuable. Don't send them with the budget Otherwise, we should not all get the list in time. I am glad to say that I am now hoping to join the family gathering at Studland on Monday, August the 26th. And I understand it is now arranged that our bicycle tour commences on the following Thursday, August the 29th, when I hope all would at any rate make a start together or meet somewhere on that day or the following morning. It is really about time we were having some definite arrangement. I have very much appreciated the foreign contributions to the budget this time and certainly hope they will be continued. I think Alduin's fever attacks really ought to be numbered for future reference. Cuthbert really is a terrible fraud with his saddle of mutton mystery. I think he seems to be heaping up trouble for himself when the budget members meet at Studland. It is rather a pity that he is quite so tall. I certainly shall hope to bring a camera with me for a few interesting snapshots. There surely ought to be plenty of opportunities during our bicycling tour. 
As I have written 20 letters in the last two days, I hope you will all excuse my writing this time and also all other imperfections. And I hope that the excellence of the rest of the budget will make up for my modest epistle. Best wishes to all, your affectionate brother, Edmund. Notes on Edmund's letter. Edmund is also referring to dinner time as his midday meal, and then he's going to play cricket in the afternoon. And it is clear, of course, that the maid or his wife is preparing Edmund's dinner and clearing it away afterwards, enabling him to go straight off afterwards and play cricket. It really was a different world back then. The siblings are looking forward to their bicycling tour, which takes place directly after their Studland Bay summer holiday. More about this in the next podcast episode. In the next episode of 100 Years of Cox, Avis draws a sketch of the famous bicycling incident, detailing what happened when the bicycling siblings are surprised by an approaching motor car. Avis also sketches the siblings' various styles of walking and asks her siblings to guess who is who. Check out my Twitter. I will post Avis's sketches there. Avis has been sent a new book, A Manual of Housewifery, which she is delighted with. Neville travels round England, visiting many of his siblings, and he writes about them all in his letter. Whilst Neville is staying with Arthur, two evenings were spent most delightfully in Do You Remember? Vera has won her club's tennis championship again. Neville and Vera go to watch the tennis at Wimbledon and describe some of the matches. I must look up who Miss Sutton was as she is described by Vera as a regular little elephant. Machel Cox Letters is on Twitter, where I share photos and sketches from the budget. Or you can send me an email, machelcoxletters at gmail.com. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 